Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me this morning is international best-selling and critically acclaimed author Steve Barry. In addition to his four standalone novels, his wildly successful Cotton Malone series, first published in 2006, now includes 14 novels. His books are translated into 40 languages, and Steve sold more than 23 million copies in 51 countries. Prior to working as a published author, Steve spent three decades as a trial lawyer and 14 of, uh, years of that as an elected official. He's a member of the International Thriller Writers Association, and Steve and his wife created the nonprofit History Matters Foundation. I'll let him talk more with us about that in just a few minutes. Steve, thanks for joining me today, and welcome to Writers on the Beat. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. The latest release in the Cotton Malone series, uh, The Malta Exchange, uh, just released today. What do you want to share with readers about that novel? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting international suspense thriller. Uh, the Pope is dead. A conclave has been called. But a cardinal has fled Rome and headed to Malta in search of a fourth century document from Constantine the Great. And Cotton Malone is after, is gets caught up in the middle of that. Um, it involves the Knights of Malta, a 900-year-old organization, the, the, the last of the warrior monks that still exist, and they're still here today. Uh, it involves um, uh, Mussolini and Churchill and some legendary letters between the two of them that have been looked, have been searched for for decades. It involves the island of Malta itself, which is a really cool place. It's like a living history museum. This is not a book, though, about some secret that's going to destroy the Catholic Church. That's not mm. what this is about. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. There's no nobody nobody wants to destroy anything. Just just the contrary, they want everything to keep going as strong as it can be as it can be. But it is a book about uh, that has a so what that deals with religion and something very interesting from religion, something that I've not seen done in fiction yet. So I decided to, to, to weave this tale with cotton, and it kind of harkens back to my, my book, The Templar Legacy, a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, where I dealt with the Knights Templar and another issue dealing with religion. But this one uh, involves the Knights of Malta, but it has that, it has that Templar Legacy feel to it. Well, it's, uh, it sounds incredibly detailed, and as, I, as I'm reading through it, it's really obvious to me the, the, the depth and length you went to for research in this book, either that or you're really great at making things up and selling it. <laughs> but I, 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 I would expect there's a, a lot of time and effort that went into researching this. Well, it'd be so much simpler if I could just make it all up. <laughs> I would make it a lot faster. And uh, unfortunately, the niche I've carved for myself is about 90% of what I put in a novel is true. And I, I keep it as close to reality as I possibly can. The fiction comes weaving the threads together mm -hmm. and changing it up just a little bit because I'm writing a novel to entertain you. So I keep it as tight to reality as possible. There's a lot of very interesting history in here, some things that the reader is going to be surprised to learn. There's some stuff that deals with corruption within the Vatican mm -hmm. that I did not make up. It's actually real that I doubt very many people even know anything about. It deals with the Knights of Malta, which people know probably little to nothing about. It's something real from its past. So I try to keep it tight. In the back of the book is a writer's note. It tells you what's true and what's false. So when you're done, you read that, and it fills in the gaps for you. 
Yeah, and I would I would imagine that most folks. Um, the only reason I've ever heard of Malta, I'd done a little traveling through Western Europe, but the, even that, the only reason I've ever heard of Malta was from a couple other authors who have placed books there. And you know, it's a, an unbelievably historically important island um, yeah. that's almost forgotten by modern man. Pretty much, it was sieged in World War II. Uh, the Nazis and the Italians both wanted it. More bombs were dropped on Malta than on London, but the island held. Mm-hmm. It never, it never, it never yielded. And it's a. It, today, it remains a very strategic because it's located in the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. halfway between Africa and Italy, and so it's the first point into the EU. You get into Malta, you can go anywhere else in the EU. So it's a. It's a critical piece of real estate. It always Mm -hmm. has been a critical piece of real estate. Whoever controlled Malta controlled the Mediterranean. And it was, uh, you know, a a base that was that that everybody wanted. Luckily, it stayed in Western hands. Yes. 1565, the Turks invaded and they tried to take it, but the Knights of Malta repelled. That's absolutely incredible. With your background in research analysis and history, that's all amazingly useful skills to lay the foundation for a fiction writing career. Um, without having that kind of professional background, how would an aspiring author go about acquiring these kind of skills that their efforts don't make professional? Uh, cops, lawyers, and historians uh, th- want to throw their book into a fireplace. Well, you learn. You just you just teach yourself. I mean, I, I was I, I wasn't taught by anybody. I learned how to research on my own. I I wanted to learn, get an answer to a question. I learned to go mm-hmm. get the books and and open them up and go through them and find the information, and and keep digging until I found what I was looking for. Research is just a matter of determination and staying with mm-hmm. it. I use around four hundred sources. There's nothing magical about me. I, I'm self-taught. I taught myself how to do it, and anyone can learn how to, to do the research. The problem is today nobody really wants to sit down and do it. They want to click on the Internet, get yes. an answer, throw it into a book, and be done with it, even though most times that information could very well be wrong. And so everyone's in a big mm-hmm. hurry today to, to, to do that. I don't do much research on the Internet. I, the Internet to me is simply a place where my imagination might get tickled or my interest sure. might get tickled. And then I go find the books to find the answers to whatever says, well, that looks pretty cool. Now let's go find out if it's real. And it's just a matter of doing the work. Yeah, I do uh, a little bit of ghost writing here and there. And uh, a guy had contracted me to write a, a historical piece and um, claimed that he had already gotten a lot of the uh, a lot of the research done. So that was going to save me time and thus him money, right? And, and he sent me a bunch of Wikipedia links. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Wikipedia is just us. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and Wikipedia is great for tickling your tickling yes. your interest. It's great for going like, wow, is, well, that's pretty interesting. What is, is that real? Well, mm-hmm. you got to go dig it up and make sure. So there is a place for Wikipedia from the standpoint of, of getting you interested, but it is not the definitive source of information. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, in, in prepping for this interview, I, I learned about your love of secondhand bookstores, and I guess one in particular. With all the copies of your works floating around the world, I would imagine that you've run into at least one of them in a used bookstore. Do you remember the first time that happened? I do. I do. I do remember that. It was in, It was actually in the Chamblin book mine, uh, that, where I do my research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, the Amber Room. He had one in there on the shelf, which I thought was amazing because I've been going in there for years. I do all my research at the Chamblin Book Mine up in Jacksonville. It's a huge used bookstore. It would take you 
couple of days to go through it. The history wow. section alone is probably 10,000 books. It's humongous. That's incredible. And it's huge. It's just, it's massive. And it's changing constantly because he's constantly getting stuff in. And all at once one day, you know, I'd been, you know, I, I was, I got published and I'd been going into that store at that point for uh, 13 years. And wow. There, there I was on the shelf, and now I actually have my own shelf. It's, a, it's a shelf there with my name on the bottom of it. He, he does that for writers that have a lot of books. Certainly. And like there's a Ludlum shelf, there's a Cussler sure. shelf, and now there's a Steve Berry shelf, which is kind of cool. And I always said if I ever got me a shelf in the Chamblin book mine, yeah. I would have I made it. You'll know you've made it. That's right. Your I ship has it, come yeah. in. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a great business strategy for for him too to help sell the copies of the the popular authors that people want to read. Um, you know, I'm I'm really um, kind of saddened by the the digital technology, the digital trend of our world. That you know, I'm I'm old enough that I still really prefer a physical copy and the smell of a bookstore and the feeling of being in a bookstore. But um, there, unfortunately, I, I don't know that my kids or grandkids are going to have that same experience at all. It's pretty sad. I think they will. I think they will. I really do. Uh, you have to understand that only a small portion of books are digitized, just a tiny little fraction of books. The vast, vast majority of books, you know, well over 98% or 99% of books are not digitized. And, and there'll be a place for those. And those will mm -hmm. be in libraries and in book and in like used to bookstores like that. So I think there will be a place for it. I don't think they're going to go away anytime, anytime soon. I think we'll I see it. It's just there's too many books out there for it to just go away. Yeah, I, I absolutely hope that uh, hope you're right on that. Mm -hmm. um, now, with your experience as a trial lawyer for 30 years and you held elected office for 14 of those, I, I assume that that's presumably as a, as a DA or ADA? No, no. I was a county commissioner and a school Oh, board. okay. Yeah, Fantastic. So I, was on the, I was on the legislative end. Oh, perfect. So that's that adds even even more diversity. To I was a I was a defense lawyer, so I was on the other side of the faith. Well, you know, it's 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 funny because I, you know, I have I'm I'm a bit of a civil libertarian and a, and pretty ideological about the way that uh, our relationship as a, as the public is supposed to work with our government, and you know, I have a a fascination with with criminal defense, and I really wholeheartedly believe that that is probably the most important position in the entire criminal justice system. I believe that the an ethical and righteous defense attorney does more to protect civil liberty than anyone else in the entire process. There's, and that's very true. There's something to be said about that. Well, and you know, I think that um, unfortunately, um, a lot of the things, and I, I, I guess we can just go ahead and jump to this question, but a lot of things in, in popular fiction and uh, film get misportrayed. Um, so when, you know, when I became a cop, there, there was no real um, courtroom preparation training at all. I think we got a couple hours in the academy, and basically all they did was scare the hell out of us about um, getting put on the Brady list. And for the benefit of the audience, um, uh, Brady list is a, a, a term that basically refers to a – a list of authors that a prosecutor's office, the DA's office must maintain of witnesses, particularly authors, not authors, particularly cops who have um, impugned themselves in some way on the, on the stand that they have been impeached, that they've, they've lied under oath effectively. And to be Brady'd is a terrible thing. It doesn't necessarily end a career. I, I kind of think it should, but it, it's a terrible thing. So all that said, 
my first experience with a, a, a real criminal trial um, was a domestic homicide case where my partner and I were the, the first ones in, in this house um, where a, a husband had, had shot his wife um, over something that didn't merit shooting. But at, at any rate, um, the prosecutor didn't meet with us at all before the day he checked us in to testify. So I walk in expecting the television or movie treatment of this diabolical defense attorney that's going to immediately attack my integrity, my methodology, and try to make me look um, incompetent and evil and malicious. And the experience was nothing at all like that. Um, from your perspective, I would have to imagine that there are a lot of things about the way that criminal trials and especially defense attorneys are presented that just makes your skin or your <laughs> blood boil. Well, there's nothing realistic about it at all on television, yeah. to be honest with you. There's no. there's no Perry Mason moments. There's none of that <laughs> kind of stuff. You know, uh, no. Trials are won and lost on the smallest of things, and mm -hmm. you don't have these major moments where you just make this fantastic argument and the entire audience just goes, wow, and the whole thing just gets mm -hmm. decided. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's a, it's a slow, steady process. A, a defense lawyer's job is to present a vigorous defense for their client and it mm -hmm. is an American and a, a, a purely American thing that everyone is entitled to a defense and everyone is entitled to a defense and everyone's entitled to their day in court mm -hmm. and everything is decided <clears throat> by an impartial trier of fact and that's what makes the American judicial system one of the finest in the world and yes it's, it's not perfect but it's a lot better than whatever in second place. Yeah, yeah, there's a huge gap. And, you know, I think that one of the things I'm actually um, uh, talking to, to some other folks later today, actually, about their experience with the Italian system, which, you know, from, you know, most Americans probably don't know much more about that than the Amanda Knox debacle. But, um, you know, the all of the rules of evidence, everything that exists is in place to protect the individual from an overzealous, malicious, or incompetent government. Yeah, and, it's, and it's absolutely imperative that defense attorneys exist um, and are able to present uh, a, a righteous defense absolutely. for everyone. And, and there's a difference between representing a client and defending mm -hmm. a client. They're, they're two different things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes your, your case is, is so bad that you, yes. you just have to make sure that everything – is done fairly and the outcome yes. is fairly certain. You know, you you know, you have to, you know, the defense attorney has to use, you know, somewhat of a common sense and somewhat of where we are, but you do your job, you represent your client or you defend your client. And sometimes, you know, you, you have to look at, I had cases that there was no way to win. It was absolutely, it's not mm -hmm. going to happen. It's impossible. The evidence was overwhelming. Certainly. The question is, you know, what can you do to minimize things for the for the client and make it as as as, as best you can for them? Mm -hmm. And that's a defense lawyer's job, just like a prosecutor's mm -hmm. job is not to convict people, but to do justice. Yes, yeah, there's a and difference between those two. It is, and I, that's one of the things that that really um, uh, agitates me as a, a member of the public, as the, of the citizenry, that. The, the DA's office so strongly, and this is across the country as far as I know. If you know of any exceptions, Steve, please correct me. But DA's offices, you know, that's an elected position, right? So they, they run 
on their conviction rates, right? And they don't run on justice rates. They want to be able to say we convict 95% of the cases that come in. And, you know, that is that in That's itself. not their job. Not their job. Their job no. is to do justice. Yes. Is to do justice. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean a conviction. And the best DAs, the ones that I had the greatest respect for, mm-hmm. knew that. Yes. They, they knew that. The, you know, the ones who were just after, you know, what can I do to convict you? No, that's, mm-hmm. that is not your job. But it gets lost sometimes in that. Yes. But, yeah, the, the best ones are the ones who know the distinction. Yeah. Well, in, in all of that, um, all of that work, I'm really kind of surprised with your background that Cotton isn't uh, your main character, Cotton Malone, in the series, uh, isn't uh, an attorney of some kind or other. Doesn't have more of a legal side background. Um, well, well, I I I didn't want him in the courtroom. I didn't want him. I, I, I wasn't interested in writing a legal thriller. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, I liked action, history, secrets, conspiracies, and that's what I like, and that's what I wanted to write. Now, now, Cotton, you know, he has a, you know, he has a, he has a legal background, but it yes. doesn't have anything to do with his current, what he's doing now, currently being retired and being out of it. I didn't, I didn't really want to. Write, I've often thought I was going to write him, you know, with something in the law, but it never mm-hmm. came about. Um, I was a lawyer. I practiced every day. I, I did all kinds of stuff. I was a trial lawyer. That's what I did. And, and I wrote the novels to escape all that. Certainly. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that kind of makes me uh, a little bit nuts about, about the police profession is it becomes so obsessive that, you know, you, you work and then you come home and you watch cops and criticize the cops on TV. And then you talk to your cop friends and pretty soon it's all your life and your identity and it's not healthy. Um, on with cotton, now, he is a former Justice Department operative, uh, but much of his exploits are kind of outside the bounds of what you'd say would be strictly legal action that readers in the public would typically expect to associate with that organization. Um, can you talk about your efforts to balance his methods with, I guess, a little bit of reality or with his past intrinsically? Well, I mean, I, I wanted to, you know, he he's retired now. He's out. And mm-hmm. so he... He can do things that he could not do before. He has a little more latitude, and he's actually hired now to do these things where he can bend the rules a bit, and and, and that's just the way he works. Uh, and that makes for an international suspense thriller, and it's part of the element of this genre. So I can't I can't you know write it exactly you know per the book or whatever. It'd be a little dull to be honest with you. We got to have yeah, some action yeah. and have some things. That happened in there. So he was always kind of a maverick and kind of a, a little bit of a rule bender, uh, occasionally a breaker, but more a bender. And and he's carried that into his retirement, and that's what kind of makes him interesting. But he has a strong moral ethic, and he has a strong, uh, you know, ethical streak in him. Mm-hmm. And there's always an ethical dilemma in the novels that he has to resolve, and he always resolves it on the right side. Yeah, I, I think he's a uh, a pretty fantastic protagonist. I, I'm really enjoying this uh, this read and looking forward to, to getting to the end and finding out how all this resolves itself with the, the Malta exchange. Um, now, on your website, you um, discuss how you started writing and about how writing workshops improved your craft. Can you talk to the listeners about that? 
Yeah, that's how I learned the craft of writing, by going to a writer's workshop, you know, for once a week for about six years and reading my chapter out loud and having everyone destroy it. And that's how I taught myself the craft of writing in a very highly critical situation. Uh, it was good for me. It worked for me. It's not for everyone. It's not certainly for the faint of heart. If you yes. can't take it, you, it's pretty mm-hmm. tough. But I learned to take that criticism, and it, and it helped me allow me to teach myself the craft of writing. And that's why I'm here today because of that writer's workshop. Yeah, I think that getting that constructive criticism from an educated and friendly audience is going to be a whole lot easier than getting the negative one-star reviews from Joe Q public um, who, you know, doesn't necessarily want to help you make your writing better. (laughs) They just want to make sure nobody else buys your books. So I I think that that kind of environment has got to be incredibly formative and useful. Yes, very much so. And and these are people who are going through the same thing you're going through who also have to read their stuff out loud and go through the same process. So you can't just post your review and say, here it is. Let me just give you my opinion and I'll walk away. No, you've got to take your turn up there too. So you you want people to be honest with you and that's what you want. And, And that's how I learned. Now, one of the um, in one of the series I'm I'm currently writing focuses on some secrets within the Catholic Church, and and I personally worry about trying to write something that's both entertaining with possible, maybe even plausible, right? Plots, characters, and action, and trying to balance all of that toward being respectful uh, toward a storied, important, and in my own opinion, uh, ultimately successful organization. Uh, Catholic conspiracies and plots kind of keep coming up in Cotton Malone's life, and I wonder how you work to strike that same balance. Well, I'm careful with it. Uh, the you know he, the Catholic Church, oh, the third secret was mm-hmm. my Catholic Church book, which was a long time ago, which was not a Cotton Malone book. That was a standalone novel. Um, the uh, the church itself has made some appearances along the way in in a few of the novels, the Venetian betrayal one in particular, where he comes in and and here and there comes in. This is the first one I've done straight up with it, but I was very careful with this. As I said earlier, this is not a book about Mm -hmm. a secret to destroy the Catholic church. It's just the opposite of that, in fact. Uh, And I didn't want to go there at all because that's been done to death. Uh, This is a, this is, this deals with something far more substantive, which is real. And uh, so I, I wanted to, to, to get away from that because that that genre has been just killed. This book does have a religious so what. The so what of the novel is religious, but it is something dealing with Christianity that I've not seen done in fiction to this point, and that's why I held it. I did three religion books, The, the Third Secret, The Templar Legacy, and The Alexandria Link. And this is my fourth one, Uh, and I held this for a number of years because I wanted to to see if anybody was going to do it. No one has ever touched it, so I went there and and dealt with it. I think the reader will be a bit surprised. The the document that they're after is fictional, but what's in the document is all real, and I think the reader is going to go, wow, I didn't really know all that, but yeah, yeah, it is. Now, you and your wife founded the History Matters Foundation. Uh, what does this organization support, and what are you working to accomplish with it? We we help communities raise money for historic preservation, and we go into a community and we put on an event, be it a gala, a dinner, a writer's workshop, you mm-hmm. name it, we've done it. 
We've done about 75 to 80 events. We've raised about $1.5 million to help wow. uh, restore projects around the country. We've done buildings, documents, books, land, cemeteries, you name it, we've raised money to preserve it. Uh, literacy is part of our mission, so we've helped with literacy as well. Uh, we've, we've, we've done a lot raising money for these small communities to help preserve the, their local history. We used to do about six projects a year. We do about 30 a year now, and we're mm -hmm. peculiar about what we do because sure. we don't charge to go. We don't we, – we pay our own way to go. We actually – pay our own expenses and everything to go. So every dime we raise goes to the project. So we're peculiar That's about incredible. where we go and what we do. Now, although not as extensive, my academic background includes a lot of historical research and analysis. And in you know history preservation, part of that, unfortunately, has not at all the same. But I think, unfortunately, people kind of start to associate these two with history revisionism, unfortunately. And I'm pretty genuinely concerned about the popular, I guess, current rise of it, both in either painting over the, the ugliness of the past to minimize it or in condemning past generations based on today's social convictions. In all your travels, research, and work in historical preservation, where do you see the biggest dangers in a, uh, and efforts to that effect? Well, you can't color history in today's filter, in today's paint. I mean, it doesn't mm -hmm. work like that. I mean, you have to... You have to look back on history and you have to look at it as it happened and when it happened in the context of it happening. And you can't put today's values on it. That's absurd. Uh, but we do it all the time. Yes. And it's done usually by people who have no idea what they're talking about. And so, you know, they they just throw <laughs> yes. that stuff out there and say, well, this is wrong. Well, it might be wrong today. It wasn't wrong 60 years ago in their mind. Correct. Yeah, it was wrong, yeah. but that's not the way they thought back then. It was a completely mm -hmm. different thought process uh, there. And so you can't do that. And so history has to be viewed in the context of where it, of when it happened. And you certainly can't erase it and throw it away. That's the, the number one mistake you should never make, because when mm -hmm. you do that, you will inevitably repeat the same mistake again. Yes. I had a, a similar conversation with someone about the the all the places around the world that we're currently engaged in and if you look back 100 years we were in most of the same places doing a lot of the same things and you know we're we're just repeating our, ourselves unfortunately yeah. on this little hamster it's, wheel we even know the history in the past yes. and we still repeat it imagine what would happen if we didn't know it yeah it, well yeah it, it, ten it'd times be worse worse. yeah absolutely uh, i you, you mentioned the history uh, matters writing workshops. Um, can you give listeners an idea about what to expect from that experience and where they can try to get engaged with that? Well, it's, it, we do it in conjunction with the History Matters event, so it depends on okay. when the next History Matters event comes up. We don't have any scheduled, any workshops scheduled at this time uh, right now, but they can check my website, steveberry.org, in the History Matters section and the events section to see where we might do another one. It's a four-hour workshop. I do three hours on the craft of writing, and Elizabeth does an hour on the business of writing. It's wow. a wonderful workshop to familiarize you with some basic skills that is applicable to all writing, no matter what you do, fiction, nonfiction, whatever genre you might do. It's the foundation stuff, the stuff I learned during the 12 years I taught myself the craft of writing. I teach you that in three hours. And we've, had, we've taught over 3,000 students 
uh, in that workshop. So it's really a cool thing, and just uh, the readers could just keep checking my website to see when we'll be doing another one. Well, that's fantastic. You, you mentioned the the twelve years of effort. It's you know there really are no lightning strikes in this business, and even you know someone that their first novel does really well, it takes a decade of work to become an overnight success, especially in in writing. Oh, yes. It's uh, very difficult. For me, it was 12 years from the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word, and it was 85 rejections over five different manuscripts. So it was a a long process for me to get published. Yes. Uh, What would you most like readers to take away from your writing? Uh, Enjoy themselves, entertain themselves, had a lot of fun, and it was was great. I I liked the ride. I forgot my troubles for a while, and I was (laughs) in this world and had some fun. And while I was there, I, I might have learned something or I might have tickled my interest to want to learn a little something more. But I, mostly I want them to have fun and enjoy themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's you can check that one down as, as accomplished. I'm a really big fan of your work and of uh, your characters and the world you've built. Well, um, thank you so much. Well, thank you for putting that, that out there. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it's a gift to, to all of us, really. All right. um, well, the book's out today. Every, please check it out. And it's in stores everywhere. And you can find out all about me and my books at steveberry.org. It's all there. Thanks again to international bestselling and critically acclaimed author Steve Berry for taking time to join me today. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, a proud part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.